Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. My name is Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that I've talked to people in every single state from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to Miami, all points in between from U.S. Senate to school board. And when I say that, it sounds like school board is the lesser of the offices in this country. But really, as I'm going to talk about today, the top elections I've talked about recently and the things I've learned the most are from state legislators and from school board members. And I have not gone back to the state in quite a while. The last time I had a guest here, I think, was 2020. And I think we should go back to Utah. I, I like, I've had a guest from every single state, like I said. And Utah, it's, it's tucked in there, right? It's easy to forget about. But there's a lot of good people there. And everybody deserves good representation. One person who's providing some of that good representation is my new, hopefully soon-to-be friend, Sarah Real, who is on the state school board in Utah. She's going to tell me all about what she does and maybe why you should run for this office, too. So, Sarah, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, uh, I always talk about, ask this question to begin with, have you always been politically involved? I know you have an education background, but has politics always been something in your life? I would say I became politically involved probably when most people do, which is around college. Mm -hmm. um, I My family is not a, you know, talk about the news all the time kind of family. Um, but I got my master's degree in political science. My first job out of college was working as the assistant to the Utah Speaker of the House in the Utah State Legislature. And in that position, I just looked around and thought, oh my goodness, there's so much to learn here and so much to do. So I went and got my master's degree in political science. My emphasis was in public policy. And since then, I've just been pretty passionate about uh, policy, specifically public lands, as well as education was my big emphasis. And I've worked in higher ed for almost 20 years, so it's always political in one way or another. And, you know, I've noticed in some ways when I follow the ongoing craziness of politics that certain state legislatures have gotten more extreme, um, but not necessarily what you would expect. Like Wyoming... Not that it's a liberal place, but maybe it hasn't drifted in the same way that Florida has, for example. And it's just maybe the competitiveness makes it that case. Um, have you noticed since you were there, um, were the state politics in Utah different when you first started there versus now? Or is it kind of the same in terms of how people are talking about it and acting in it? Well, I think that the Republicans had a really good strategy after Obama won, which was to go in and take state control of all the legislators, legislatures, and we've seen that happen. And in Utah, we've always had a Republican majority, generally. Um, the Democrats are the minority in the state of Utah, but we tend to work together really well. And our current governor, Spencer Cox, he always talks about the Utah way, and he talks a lot about um, bipartisanship, and it's something I believe in deeply. And I will say, though, especially since after the pandemic and even leading up to that, we've just seen a shift. And I think it's culturally across the country. And I always thought that Utah would be a little bit immune to it. But I'm seeing it's happening here as well. It's just becoming extremes. And a lot of it I kind of tie back to party politics and the convention process and the primary process. And we're getting these more extreme candidates into office. Uh, I work there's the State Board of Education is partisan, which I, I actually don't believe it should be. I wish it was nonpartisan, and it used to be. Mm -hmm. 
I am one of two Democrats and the board is 15 um, people representing the whole state. And so 13 Republicans and two Democrats. And I will say my colleagues, um, my Republican colleagues are fantastic. They're wonderful. Um, I adore working with them. They're brilliant and talented people. And we work really great together. But we are seeing even through that process, the, the fear that I have in the convention and primary process, that these moderate collaborative bipartisan folks on both sides are getting, you know, kicked out and not being able to be reelected through the uh, primary and convention process. And that scares me. And so I think that that has led to more um, extremism, you know, some unnecessary regulation and lawmaking. And that's really frustrating for me. Yeah, I remember both in 2020 and in uh, 2016, I think even in the 2018 midterms, uh, people who aren't from Utah saying, you know what, they have this way of uh, picking their candidates, uh, but the uh, Democrats might have a shot at like changing the uh, proportions at least because um, the, the extremism of the right. It, Utah is more moderate. Um, people who are religious in, in uh, Utah are different. And they don't mean that in a bad way. They're just like, you know, actually, it's a very neighborly, caring state. Um, so there was a, a lot of talk about Utah being a more moderately conservative place at, when it comes to the people. Is that kind of a fair assessment from afar? I would say that's completely fair. And, you know, people that get frustrated with Utah politics, I truly, I've lived in Utah my entire life, and I really believe that it is a place that will make progress in the right way. And I'm glass half full. I'm an optimist about our our government and the way that it's run. And I, I think that there are good people that end up doing the right thing. Um, but it feels like the loud factions, these minorities, are really having a lot of control and power in our government right now, which is unfortunate. But I do believe that Utah is a place that, you know, I mean, our pride parade in Salt Lake in Utah, the Utah pride parade is massive. It's our biggest parade in the entire state. And so... There's a lot of misconceptions about this place, um, but overall, I feel optimistic that our we are moderate Republicans and we care a lot about doing the right thing and working collaborative collaboratively together. And I hope to see more of that in the future. So, but your future is involved in being an elected office. What made you decide that you were going to? You've seen what it's like. You know your own background might not mesh with some of the rest of the politics, maybe. What made you think you would become a candidate for office? Well, I teach, and I've taught for the last 10 years, uh, intro to political science at the community college, Salt Lake Community College. And um, I'm also an administrator full-time there. I just teach one class a semester. And my students, as I talk about representation, and I talk about the job of being an elected official and just government generally, I found that students are, you know, they feel just completely disenfranchised. They don't care. They feel like no one listens. They feel like there's too much power. They feel like um, the government isn't working for them. And I just kept hearing this over and over and over again every semester. And it really frustrated me because I, you know, understand our government at the core level and its intention. And I felt like we really, they were right, or my students were right. We have swayed from that, right? And there are a lot of factors that play into that party, two party system, as well as, um, you know, how hard it is to beat an incumbent, campaign finance, right? I could go into all of that. But I knew that if I 
had the opportunity to run and get elected that I could, and I truly believe that you can actually be a true representative um, and serve your constituents and do what's right for the community as a whole, instead of what's, you know, have some self-interested and intention. And so for me, that was a huge motivator is to like change the narrative and be a different kind of elected official and prove that you could be what people hope for, for from their elected officials. And I also care deeply about education. Um, I believe education is the cornerstone to an equitable society, provides access, opportunity, so important. And I was really frustrated by the lawmaking and regulation that, and the disrespect, honestly, to the profession of education and as well to our schools and all of our school systems. Um, I really believe in public education as well, and I feel like it is a important thing to fight for, and I was willing to take that risk to fight for it. Yeah, and first, I was just writing down some notes you're talking. So you talked about talking to your students about representation. Um, you know, we have so many things we can elect people for. Like, we're going to elect a new attorney general here in Pennsylvania next year. So there are certain rules with that. You have to be a member of the bar in Pennsylvania. I can't be the attorney general, probably. I'm not I'm not going to pass the bar. I don't even know any. Like, but, um, but what does representation mean to you when it comes to elected office, whether it's in education or state legislature, et cetera? Um, what does that word mean to you when you're talking to your students? To me, and when I talk to my students, I talk about how, you know, I talk to them about all the levels of government and how many people represent them, mm -hmm. um, you know, from city to city council like you and all the way up to the federal level. But how important it is to care a lot about the folks that represent you on the local municipal as well as the state level, because they will have so much influence and impact on your life more than, you know, anyone in Washington, D.C. will have. Um, so when I talk to them about representation, I talk about what is, you know, in your city, you have someone that represents you and that person's job is to listen to you, to hear your concerns, to talk to their constituents and make sure that they are voting and making policies that align with the people that they represent, not what they think is best, not what they think is the most important. And, you know, I talk to them about how you can have a trustee or a delegate representation, but to me, the way that our government was set up, my job is to listen to my constituents and do what's best for my district. Well, and you know, push back on that a little bit. So many people in office, including people who've been in office for 10, 20 years, who say, I'm not a politician. My friend is a state rep, and he goes, oh, I'm not a politician. I'm like, look, Tim, I love you, but you've been a state rep since 2008. You're a politician. It's not a bad thing. But the voters keep reelecting these people, right? So obviously they must be, to, to an outside person, they must be responding to the public at large, right? Like, are they not? Or is it just because of the way they get nominated? Well, to start, I mean, my I, idealistic view of representation obviously is laced with politics. Mm -hmm. Laced with politics, right? Um, but... That's part of the problem, I think, is that people aren't engaging enough, right? <clears throat> they're tired of politics. They're tired of talking about political um, topics and issues. They don't even know who represents them on all of these levels. Um, they vote straight party. And that lack of engagement allows those extremes to keep getting elected, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but if we can, even in the smallest way, if I can shift that narrative and 
not only in actions, but in how I serve, truly listen and reach out and respond to my constituents, that shows better representation, right? Um, Obviously, there are a lot of people that know that they are in a district that is a certain party and everyone always wins in that certain party. And um, they aren't obligated to reply to every email. And that's, that's their their way of feeling like they're serving the people best, right? And they don't have any risks that come with that. But that's also a reason why people, once they engage and start paying attention, um, and one big piece for my students is I tell them, get engaged. If you see someone that you think, you know, you believe in and you think would be do a great job, donate to their campaign, volunteer, get a yard sign, do anything, right? We need that engagement if we ever want to change the um, current layout and the, and the people that are able to do uh, the work without being true representative, re- representatives. So here in Pennsylvania, um, the schools or advocates just won this major lawsuit to that demands better funding of education in the state. And the Republicans in the state are trying to like massage that and say, oh, that could mean what we want it to mean. And they're like, no, it directly means we should fund public education better. You say you want to be an advocate of public schools. Is there a, how do you, what does that mean to you in terms of being an advocate for public schools versus just being an advocate of education? I use that with finger quotes and no one can see. Like, what does that mean to you being an advocate of public schools and why? For me, it comes back to equity. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of states, you know, we see this divide where anyone with, Um, the means sends their kids to private schools, right? And what we've seen is this big equity gap grow between the students who can only afford, I'm sorry, my dog is snoring, only go divide between those that can only attend public schools and then everyone else going to private schools. And what I love about Utah is 95% of our students are in public schools. And I believe that having an equitable education is putting the focus and the dollars and the emphasis on those public schools, because that's the only way we can serve all of our students with um, equally. And so for me, fighting for and supporting public education is about equity and being able to allow access for all students to get a great education. And so what do you do to do that? Because you hear that from so many people, whether it is someone in your position or state representative or someone running for president, and it sounds great, but what are the, tact- the the actual things and policies you can do to help make that so? Well, one big one that happened that unfortunately was a failed fight was uh, vouchers. Mm-hmm. Vouchers, I mean, I've, I've been working on and done research on vouchers since 2007, I believe, when we had it as a ballot initiative um, to overturn the voucher bill that the legislature had passed. There is no great evidence that shows that voucher programs improve academic excellence, improve their, you know, academics, or provides more access for more students in the way that they market it to be, right? So for me, that was like a big thing. Like, I knew that if we are taking state funding away from our public schools and giving them to private and charter schools, that was going to be a detriment to public education. That was going to hurt public education. I thought that the best I could. Um, I... We rallied as a board and got the board to come out in opposition to our voucher bill. Uh, unfortunately, the legislature still carried on with the voucher bill, and we're going to see that. Um, I think that it, 2024 is when it will be fully enacted. 
But that's one big way. It's like, how do we get more funding into education? And how do we make sure that education funding isn't pulled into private and charter schools? Um, as well as like every time the legislature is in session and we have a 45-day legislative session in Utah, uh, I am consistently pushing and pushing to get as much funding as possible into education because even though it is highly funded and feels highly funded um, as far as the budget goes, we are underfunded and we are not serving our students as well as we could. Now, I have talked to so many people in uh, at every state, really, who talk about this voucher issue and talk about a tax on education. Um, but it, it seems to me like a, a pretty big gulf that I, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around when you're looking at the evidence because from Oklahoma to Missouri, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, Utah, Arizona, of course, Arizona um, you know, you have people who kind of bring your arguments and your evidence and then yet still these Republican legislatures, conservative legislatures keep pushing for vouchers. Why? What, what, do you, what is the big push to do it when, like you said, it doesn't seem very wishy-washy to me in terms of the evidence for communities. What is the benefit that you think is pushing this uh, agenda? I think that they have uh, great lobbyists in mm -hmm. charter and private schools, and they're highly influential. Um, the public education system is so complex, and it's so big, and it's hard to even get my local school boards and the state school board together on an issue, right? Because it's mm -hmm. different areas of the state, different needs, right? But, you know, there's a national initiative that these charter and, pub, uh, charter and private schools are pushing to get vouchers, and they're really effective, and they've done a great job at getting legislation. And the, the way that they market it is that, you know, they called Utah's uh, Utah one – well, now I don't remember. It's like one side, one, it fits all scholarship, whatever. Basically saying that in Utah, there's students that have certain needs that they might have, and they might not be getting that from the public school. So let's give them money to go to a school where they can have their needs met. And I just hate that because these charter and private schools are not required to follow IEPs and support students. They generally don't have extra support staff for students with special needs. And they are not obligated to do any of that. So that marketing message, which was there, let students go in the place where they can get the best um, education is just completely false. Uh, not to mention in Utah, we have more parental choice laws than most states. Students can go to any school they'd like. Parents get to choose regardless of their, you know, where, what area or what district they live in. Parents have the most amount of rights is in regards to transparency and other issues. And so it was just a false narrative that they were presenting. And the majority of teachers, they tied our voucher bill to uh, increase in teacher salaries, which was like mega icky. Um, so they're like, we're going to also give teachers a raise while we pass this voucher bill. And the majority of teachers protested and came out and said, we would not like the raise, please. We do not want this voucher bill. So that shows you that the folks in education and the majority of people were opposed to this, but the legislature went on anyways. So how, how do these vouchers impact the people who stay in the public schools? Because I can, it's a very complicated issue, but if you have a voucher program where people are going to some other schools, and like you said, they're all different, but how does it impact the existing public school infrastructure and the classrooms? It takes funding away. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest piece. Um, so 
the what we've learned from all of the states that have patched, passed different versions of voucher bills, one is that the majority of people that end up taking that voucher money are already going to private or charter schools. Mm-hmm. So we're not giving access to a bunch of new students. Um, and the other thing that we've learned is that this program, they started at a dollar amount, this, this line up budget when they passed the bill, but it has continued in every state. The budget has just gotten bigger and more and more and more, and they've grown. And so every single time, if you have a, a your education budget and a lot of it is going to not your public education system, that's like one of the biggest issues that I see coming from it is that it's going to end up meaning less funding for public education, which to me means less access and less equitable education opportunities for all students. And I think a lot of people look at um, public schools, a lot of people who think differently from me, and see it as just a lot of, like, you don't see a classroom of 40 kids, you see it as 40 individuals, so let's help, the money follow the kid is the word, the phrasing that sounds all great in marketing and whatnot, but, is, but public schools are a greater public good than just... Tony, the student going through K through eight, right? What is it? What are people missing about understanding education as a public good for the community? That's such a public good. It is a public good. And to me, you know, right now, for example, in the state of Utah, we have major shortages in health sciences and a couple under other industries. And I don't think, I don't think people realize it's not just about their kid or their kids. It's about our entire state. It's about your community. And when you are saying my kid and I need this money and I want to be able to, you know, all this, you're forgetting that it doesn't matter if your kid ends up being the most successful human being in the world. We need everyone to be educated. We need the entire um, community to be educated so that we can have, you know, a better economy, better, uh, like less needs for um, unsheltered, like there's a zillion reasons why education is not just important for what, how your kid goes through education, but for the entire country, the entire state. And I think I want people to realize that, that just because they have privilege or um, the means to do something different with their kid, and they have the right to do that, they can send their kid wherever they want. It is still important to fund and support public education. Yeah. I I mean, I agree. I want, I, like I, there's a quote says not just that I want to fund education to help a kid I just don't want to be surrounded by morons right like I exactly yeah and I don't have kids I have zero kids I have no intention of having any kids but to me I still am happy to pay taxes to support our public education system and obviously I'm doing a lot for it in education as myself but it's not I'm not even going to have kids but I care so much about the world and our country and all of our kids having that opportunity to be educated. Now, I mean, it's like a lot of systemic issues could be solved if everyone had more equitable ed- education. And, you know, one of the systemic issues in the equity in education is not just black and white or poor and rich, but rural and city. And I, when I've talked to people, especially from Oklahoma um, and some other states with a big rural population, it sounds like these attacks on public education can really hurt small town and more rural districts where kids have to drive far to get there. And yet those are often the legislators who are helping these things pass. Do you see that as an impact? Uh, is, is the impact really hurting those kind of communities since you're seeing it on a statewide level? For sure. And, you know, that was the funniest part about, well, the most annoying part mm-hmm. about our voucher bill is I was like, sitting there thinking all of these rural legislators 
voting for school vouchers, which basically is taking dollars out of our public education budget and giving it to students that do not live anywhere near their district. Most of their rural districts don't even have a private or charter school to send these kids to. So none of their constituents and none of the kids in their district are going to be able to use that voucher money. But they still were in support of it. And honestly, I, it doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think it goes but it does. It the rural of, districts are having different needs for sure. Doesn't it kind of go back to the representation issue too? Because I don't know if those people are directly impacted by education the same way. I don't know what the legislature is like exactly. I know Derek Kitchen. I've talked to him on the podcast. Uh, but, you know, so many people in legislatures don't have kids in schools anymore or they can send their own kids to private school. Or maybe do you think that the representation that exists, not just in Utah, but in every state, maybe um, be sometimes they're a bit disassociated from the direct impact of some of this legislation? I'm sure that's the case. Um I do find it interesting, though. Uh, there was over 100 education-related bills in our last legislative session. It was miserable. Mm. And it's always so funny to me that when we start talking about education, the legislature claims to be the experts in knowing what's best for the system without doing research, without um, engaging in their district with their local school boards at all or the state school board um, and they start campaigning. And every time they campaign, they talk about education. It's like their favorite thing to campaign on. And every time they talk about education on the floor, it's, well, my mother was a teacher or my, you know, my sister is a teacher or whatever. And I always am like, did you talk to them before <laughs> you thought about this legislation? Because I promise you they would not be big fans. And so um, education is turning into something that is very political. And I think that's part of it is that they can run on it. Um, you know, they hear, I had, uh, there was a couple bills this session that it was like, I heard from one parent that this one teacher did this one thing. So I'm going to pass a state law that stops that from ever happening again. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, survey of one dude. Like, that does not mean that this is something that is happening system-wide, that this is something that we need a law for. Um, I'm big on local control. And when I say local control, I don't even just mean local school boards. I mean local control down to let the principal and the parent and the teacher figure that out, right? But instead, they're passing state laws to handle something that is not even actually a problem and does not need any regulation. Yeah, I mean, to go to a literature thing, hearing about one teacher is kind of like the crucible and hearing about Goody Proctor, right? Because, like, I have kids and they just finished third and first grade and they'll come home and there's all they love their teachers. But there's always, like, one thing that happened that one kid did or one teacher said or that they heard from another kid. And they're... I love my kids. They're smart kids. I'm not trying, but there's, there's all, there's always some kind of credibility issue there with where they're going with that. Maybe a teacher was extra nice because someone needed it. And they're like, it wasn't fair, but it, it, it surprised me. You see all of these rumors from the right about things that, you know, have you put a skeptical eye to this at all? Yeah. I, you know, I campaigned and I only knocked on doors of Republicans mm -hmm. and I, did not hear from one door that I knocked in on about banning books or any of these hot topic, you know, like these hot button issues that we're hearing in education. And 
And I was like, interesting. I expected to have a lot of heated arguments about book banning, about transparency, about rainbow flags in schools or whatever, right? And I didn't. And I, I am coming to the conclusion that there is a very small group of parents that are pushing a lot of these messages and they have the ears of a lot of state legislatures. And that is the conclusion that I'm coming to based on my evidence. It's not scientific, right? But I mean, the majority of parents don't even go to parent-teacher conferences, Mm -hmm. don't log into their learning management tool to see what the teacher is teaching them that week. They don't join school community councils. They're just like, hey, I trust my teacher. Go ahead. They're going to school. It's going to be great. But there's these loud groups of parents that are just screaming about these terrible issues in our education and our students are being brainwashed. And that is not the opinion or thought of most people. And that's what bothers me is that there's legislation driven based on this small vocal minority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this very vocal minority is going to be in my hometown. Well, not hometown, but nearby in a few days with a big moms for Liberty conference. They have um, not in addition to Donald Trump, they have Robert Kennedy jr. Which there's gotta be some sort of thing there, right? Like RFK is there. Maybe we shouldn't trust that guy. Um, what do you think that parents should know when they hear these loud voices and they they see this pushback on ridiculous things? Um, you know, we have one of the most contentious school districts in the country is one county away from mine. And we're a state that's elected a lot of Democrats versus Utah, which has not. And so, you know, it happens everywhere. What, what do you think parents should know and be aware of as they're caring about their own kids or future kids' education? couple things. One is I, I, I think people all need to remember that teachers' working conditions are students' learning environments, right? So when we support teachers, we support students. And so for me, I think that the best thing that a parent can do is thank a teacher, talk to their teachers and say, hey, is there anything I can do to support my student? Because the reality is teachers are asked to do everything and then they're punished when they don't meet those unrealistic expectations so teachers are supposed to get them on testing levels get them um to understand social and emotional learning which is a scary word for a lot of those groups but it's basically like kindness and how to wait in line and do all these things right right (laughs) um they're expected to be mental health counselors in some ways when they don't want to be And when a teacher isn't meeting those expectations, these insane expectations they've been asked to do, they're punished for that, Mm -hmm. right? And they punish the public education system. So one of the biggest reasons why I ran was because my sister, my mom's a teacher and my sister's a teacher and my mom teaches junior high and my sister teaches high school. She's getting her PhD right now. She's an incredible teacher. Um, And she called me during the 20. 21 legislative session and said, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Mm -hmm. She was so tired of all the pushback and all of the hate that she was getting and how she felt like she wasn't trusted, even though she has at that point a master's degree and was getting her PhD. She's so trained in her profession. And I said, well, too bad. You're going to have to keep teaching because I'm going to make you. But also it made me realize like if we're losing all of these teachers because of the environment that we're creating, This is more than just us pushing back on the legislature. This is parents coming in and saying, I trust my teacher. And I want to tell my kid when they come home, like, 
oh, well, you know, they told me I had to do my homework or something, something, instead of going, calling the teacher and saying, why did you tell them that they need to do that? Be like, oh, well, your teacher probably knows best for what you need in this learning, you know, situation, right? And that makes the kids respect the teachers more. So for me, I think one big thing parents can do is trust teachers and support teachers and be a partner to teachers in their child's learning experience. Yeah, I'm sorry if I looked down, I had to write down what you said about working conditions and student environments. That's you know, yeah, if you you've encapsulated one of the most important things in education everywhere, so let's put that on billboards across the country. Um, <laughs> you 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 um you know you pointed out about people like your family members who uh, would just retire. They don't just go. It's not like a system where well, if we make public school really bad for teachers we don't like, wink wink, then those good teachers will go work at the private schools we like, and then they'll be better. That's not how it works, right? Like your mom's not going to go, well, I'm going to go to that charter school now, right? That It doesn't help the system in any way. No. Uh, you know, honestly, I was listening to um, the education secretary speak recently at some national school, state school board conference thing. That's some acronym that I can't remember now. And he was talking to our group, which were uh, state school board folks from all across the country, and he said that this teacher shortage is going to turn out to be one of our biggest health crises. Mm-hmm. crises. And, and it's true. Like, we have to figure out a way to respect that profession more so we stop losing teachers mm-hmm. because we need them desperately. And, you know, I, just, like, I don't go to my mechanic and say, what certificate do you have? And how did you treat the engine of my truck, right? Like, we just trust these people in this profession to do their job. And for some reason, education has turned into this, I'm going to just tear you apart for every single thing you do. And and the reality is these teachers are standing in front of a group of students, and they all have different needs. Mm-hmm. One's falling asleep. Another one is, like, picking their nose. The other one's crying. The other one is, you know, an English language learner. The other one has um, some sort of, like, you know, like learning disability. It's just like, we're looking at this teacher and we expect them to figure out, and they are asked to just pull all these students together and get them learn at the same level. And that is a difficult job. And to me, I just commend every single person who goes in and wants to teach. And the fact that we're losing them is just so heartbreaking to me. And was a big reason why I ran was for teachers because I really believe that if we support teachers, we support students. So I I hope that everyone realizes how big of a deal it is that we are losing teachers at the rate we're losing them because it's going to be really, really scary. Yeah. And the pressures on students themselves are a lot greater and more complicated than they were when you were and I were in school, right? Like it's just, I I don't think a lot of adults, especially people who are in legislatures or maybe in their fifties or sixties, which is nothing wrong with being in your 50s and 60s. I hope to be there in a few years myself, right? But, like, they don't realize that the pressures from school and sports and social life and social... Like, the, the, the difficulties of being a kid are so much different and diverse than they were when we were in school. Right, like screens. Mm-hmm. You know, I always tell, I tell my students, I'm like, I went to college without a cell phone, a computer, or a car, right? You don't see that happening today. Like, there are just... Our students have different needs, and it's a completely different environment than when uh, than 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And we need to stop believing that things work the same way that they did then. We need to adapt. We need to change. We need to create more wraparound services for our students. 
when I talk to my superintendents, the thing that they say they need the most is more support in mental health professionals. Number one. Mm. And they say that every single time. That wasn't something that, you know, probably mostly because it wasn't talked about, which is unfortunate. But that wasn't a need when I was in elementary school. Mental health was not a need, right? But we have screens and we have social media and all these, like we have students vaping in school. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these different needs. And our our elected officials who are making these laws and, and passing these policies, they need to think about how there's just different students, not the same as it was before. Well, there's obviously many challenges to education, whether you are in a red state, a blue state, statewide, teacher, student, parent, etc. So it's a very complicated thing to run for. And it's not also not easy just to run for that office. So it could be discouraging for people who they care about schools, they care about their community. Like you said, good parents are just not involved in PTC because they're busy. It doesn't mean they're bad people. They're, they're involving their kids in another way. Why would you encourage people to run for these kind of offices now? And what step would you say would be like, your first thing you should try to do is X? Well, I think that if you, for me, I have the time and the energy and I have the experience, but I'm definitely, no one who goes into public office knows everything about everything, right? Like, no city council member knows how zoning works perfectly when they even then when they get elected, right? Mm-hmm. I'm still um, figuring it out. But, yeah, yeah. And so you you need to go in knowing that you won't know everything, but that it is important if you have the time and the energy and the um, ability to be able to run for office. We need people to run. We need people to run, and you might lose your first time. I lost my first time. I ran for Salt Lake City Council, and I lost. You might lose your first time, but if you can and you have the ability to do so, it is so important to put yourself out there. And oftentimes, even when you lose, you're delivering a message that might be important, and you might be moving the needle. And right now, I mean, it's pretty contentious and we are having a lot of like you know all of these culture wars in education so when it comes to school boards I think that it's really important to have a diverse set of representation on school boards so if you're looking at the school board and it's eight people and they're all PTA moms which are wonderful I love the PTA moms but maybe we need someone from higher ed in there maybe we need someone who's single and you know what I, I don't know it's just like it's important to have different voices at the table and so um the opportunities there it's hard work but it is definitely worth it um every day i mean i i get attacked on social media and i have all these things happen to me but then when i see or hear from an educator thank you for saying what we all want them to hear or Thank you for standing up for us. Thank you for fighting for climate change in our standards. That was something I just went through. It is worth it for me. It's hard, but it's so worth it because I know that I'm supporting and helping our education system. Um, and and that makes it worth it. Yeah, I, I am. I, I totally agree. It's something important to me as well. Uh, and I've seen, talked to so many people in my years in, in government myself or just in politics where you meet someone they're like, I don't want someone like me in office. Like you saying that is why we want someone like you in office. Cause that means that there's no one like you in office. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm, I was the first openly gay elected state board of education member for the state. And um, it comes with a lot of responsibility, but also like, I'm grateful that 
the LGBTQ community can have that voice on the board as well. Um, and I'm also, like I said, I don't have children. And I think that's an important voice as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a higher ed experience. So it's like we need more diverse voices. And that means a lot of different things. But I think it's really important for representation. And I, I didn't bring that up because, like, I talked to Brianna Titone, who is a trans state legislator in Colorado. And I was like, that's probably the only thing you're ever asked about. And she has a huge science degree, environmental degree. She's one of the smartest people I've ever talked to in my 200 episodes of this. Like, let, let's highlight these other things. So since you brought up um, only um, openly gay member of the school board in Utah, what is something that parents or voters should know about making sure that we can uh, trust and respect and take care of LGBTQ youth in the country when it comes, because there's so many attacks. There's a group that's coming to Philadelphia. Scary seeing what's happening. My kids are only nine and seven. You know, they, you know, I don't know what their life's going to be like or their friends' lives. What's, is there any kind of thing you, you think that we should just keep in mind or advocate for that can help make the world a better place when it comes to this? Yeah. Um, I, I actually Solve gave it all, at, the last, <laughs> at the last, yeah, at the last board me- meeting, um, I was, gave the member message, which is like, you get like 15 minutes at the beginning, one board member each month. And I gave my message uh, about just sort of my story, but as well, I gave a lot of data on uh, LGBTQ students and teen suicide. And Utah, the high, the number one cause of death for kids in Utah is suicide. And so um, there's a statistic that came out that says that if one if the student has one adult in their life, that could be a teacher, that could be a neighbor, that could be any adult, someone at church, that they know that they support them as a queer student, Mm -hmm. that that decreases their risk of suicide by 45%. Mm. So that's why I emphasize how important it is to have safe, inclusive learning environments. Um, it saves lives. Uh, and my big thing that I said was that, you know, we, our kids are seeing the adults fight. Mm-hmm. So be a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that that little rainbow flag on that teacher's desk could actually save someone's life. It's not about protesting or, you know, brainwashing. It's about safety mm-hmm. and saying this is a safe space. And so parents and teachers, the more that they can fight, to have those inclusive, safe learning environments, not only are the students going to learn in in a much better way, but it also can save students' lives. Yeah, I know. Again, bring up my kids who they don't have. They haven't talked about those kind of issues yet. Though they've talked, you know, I've even heard at the ice cream shop some kid making a gay reference because like that's what kids do. And like, and I said yeah. we don't do that here. That's not okay. Especially since it was the ice cream store that had all the pride stuff up. It was, uh, you know, but. Um, I know, like, I can see the pressures that they have even in first grade of if a kid doesn't want to play with them just that day. They're still friends the next day, but, you know, kids are emotional. And I can't imagine one, not just one more straw on the camel's back, but like a big boulder on them with everything else from testing to college to, um, you know, whether someone likes them or not to, you know, not even romantically, just wants to be their friend that day. I, it just breaks my heart to know that people are treating others that way. Yeah, it, it, it kills me too. And that's why school should be a place where you can feel safe. Yeah. And, and you know, I really do believe that the 
kids are watching. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, like it's sort of like those TikTok videos where someone swears, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, the kid swears. And you're like, where did you learn that? Well, I wonder why. Right. Um, and so it's like they, they're like glue. They Everything sticks with them. And when they see a parent, you know, either they're in junior high and they see their mom posting on Facebook about like, I can't believe this and that. They notice that. Mm-hmm. And then they start repeating that behavior. So I think that we can, as adults, be good examples to our kids and stop screaming at each other and stop treating each other terribly. I think that can go a long way. Yeah, well, um, I know, speaking of bad words, my son saw a movie yesterday at camp and he's like, Dad, they said the F word. It's like, you saw it for two and a half hours and you remember that. You've heard that at home. Like, don't don't yeah, pretend like that's the worst part of the movie. Right. Yes. Um, but you set a good example in Utah, and I think it's an example maybe others would like to follow. There are so many school board elections in this country and also other offices that impact education. It's called the You Should Run podcast. Tell me um, um, why you would encourage people to be running for office today or getting the first step. But what, what, you're Just your short words of encouragement for why you want others to consider running as well. I would encourage you run because it's worth it. And we're never going to see change if we don't step up and take that risk and run for something and, you know, try to engage and participate in the process because representation matters and you have an opportunity to do that. And you might fail, but it will be completely worth it to change the narrative. I promise. Yeah. And lastly, um, this was a question I was about to ask and I got my words confused. I was thinking so many things. (laughs) Um, you were very uh, kind to share your time with me. People might want to ask questions, get your own encouragement. What's the best way that people can follow you either on social or email or whatever they want to do to follow and learn more? Yeah, everything's at Vote Real. So Vote Real, R-E-A-L-E, one word, Vote Real, at Instagram or Twitter. You can send me a direct message. Um, I'm also at Vote Real at gmail.com if you want to hit me up there as well. And I encourage you to do so. Uh, Sarah will respond. I promise you, she just did here. I promise. And I, I honestly could talk for the next hour and a half, but that would be not great for both of us, probably. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah, for you know devoting yourself to public service and running for office. And I hope others will take your message. Maybe they'll run for office, too. I hope so, too. Thank you so much for having me. It's so important to get this message out there.